Hey, podcast listeners, it's Joe Pastor, the producer. Are you a fan of our podcast? Well, here's a chance to be part of one of our episodes. We have a podcast episode currently in the works where we plan to delve into process safety professionals' personal stories about why they are passionate about process safety, and we'd love to hear from you. So we want to know, why is process safety important to you? Did learning about a major industry incident impact how you felt about process safety? Or did you or someone you know have a firsthand encounter with a catastrophic event or even a near miss? So what can you do if you'd like to contribute to the episode? You can send us your thoughts via email and we will read them during the episode. Or you can record a short voice message using your phone and send it to podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks and hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing another investigation report that was recently issued by the CSB about an incident at the Carrare America facility in Pasadena, Texas. This incident occurred on May 19th, 2018, and the CSB issued their investigation report at the end of 2022. So for this discussion, I'm happy to have Chris Paskatch joining me again. Chris is the Flare Master at the Phillips 66 Wood River Refinery, and this is our second time on our podcast. So welcome back, Chris. All right. Thanks. Good to be back. Yeah. So, Chris, why uh, does it make sense for you to uh, help me out on this podcast? So believe it or not, right, I, I think uh, we talked about last time kind of, you know, what does a flare master do? Um, I, you know, I look at pressure relief systems. Mm-hmm. We do have, you know, relief valves that relieve the atmosphere rather than a closed system or a flare system. And for those systems, you need to take into consideration where is this release going to go? Is it a safe area? Are there occupied areas nearby that we need to worry about? Do we need to put signage up to tell people not to occupy areas specifically? <laughs> exactly. And so the real heart of this incident is regarding relief devices and the fact that they were not routed to a safe location. So as you said, last time we talked a lot about the documentation and upfront design side of relief valves. And now we'll be talking a little bit about the discharge side and what happens when these relief valves do their job. And in this particular incident, unfortunately, there were some significant adverse consequences. So welcome back. Let me give the listeners a little bit of background on the company. Carrare makes ethylene and vinyl alcohol copolymer. They call it eval. This material functions as a gas barrier for oxygen and is used in food packaging and beverage containers. The facility has four similar production units, coincidentally, called eval one, two, three, and four. So this incident occurred in eval two, which is one of the oldest ones dating back to 1986. And as frequently happens, the incident occurred during the startup of a unit after turnaround. 
So these startups and abnormal operating modes are often the most dangerous. So Chris, why don't you fill everybody in on exactly what happened with this relief device during their startup? Yeah. So, you know, I haven't read this report. My understanding is that on startup, right, there's, well, I guess there are, there are a lot of moving parts to this one. They had a chiller system that they had talked about having that in service on startup. I think there was an interlock to keep that off during startup, but they, they had that bypass. There was really no adverse consequences identified there. Unfortunately, and I, I guess I've, I have a little bit of personal experience with this from previous roles, but ethylene is actually a little bit more dangerous than people give it credit for. It's kind of, you know, it, everybody thinks of acetylene as being really dangerous, and mm-hmm. it is. Ethylene's really not far behind. It's it's not quite as flammable, but I mean, it can decompose on its own if you have a, I say, a high enough pressure process. It's happened to lower pressures, but it doesn't even need oxygen to mm. to have like an internal deflagration inside of a vessel. And and so this wow. this was an example here that right they they didn't appreciate that if they chill too much they can get the ethylene to to condensed really the, yeah condensed and dissolved into the was I think it was methanol right. I don't remember what else was in the reactor, but yeah, it was not operating quite like they anticipated on their startup because it was too cold. Yeah, it's actually, I think what they, what they set up there is really similar to if, you know, welding gases, right? You can't ship acetylene under high pressure in a bottle that would, you probably wouldn't even get it out of your factory before something happened to it. So what, what they do is they put some, I forget if it's methanol or something, I'm sure your listeners would know Mm -hmm. exactly, but they have something in there to kind of sponge it so that you don't have okay. the high pressure acetylene that's just going to light off if you bump the cylinder. Okay. So that, that that was that was a big part of the confusion on their side that you know something was happening they didn't expect and they they couldn't get the pressure to stop rising. And I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in more detail as we go through this, but right, the pressure continued to rise. They tried to vent it a little bit. There was a shift change. New people came in. <laughs> Uh, those hazards of turnarounds and startups, right. yep. They they noticed that things were abnormal and they started trying to make moves to, I think, right, they introduced steam into the steam jacket to try mm-hmm. to heat it back up, which really just kind of set this thing off that all that ethylene started to come out of solution. Right. And I'm not sure if they anticipated how quickly it was going to come out. And eventually that's where you had your relief valve lift, right. lifted to right. atmosphere because they had... I mean, that that's the relief valve. It's it's going right. to go somewhere. They said right, the and, and and it did its job. I mean, that's what the relief did. devices are designed to do: is control that pressure so that you don't have a catastrophic rupture of your vessel when the pressure gets high. And so it did its thing. Yep. Right. Oh yeah. Easy, easy to say. This would have been worse <laughs> if that hadn't done what it did. <laughs> it, exactly. But uh, the unfortunate part is that this was routed to atmosphere and. More importantly, that relief valve discharge was routed horizontally and coincidentally pointed towards another elevated structure where there were a lot of contractors working as part of this startup. They didn't evacuate and it ignited. As you said, it's very easy to ignite the ethylene and ended up with essentially a big blowtorch fireball pointed at a bunch of workers and they had 23 people injured. Mm-hmm. I don't think they said it explicitly in the report. It sounded like it was probably a delayed ignition. So there, it kind of mm-hmm. looked like maybe there was a vapor cloud explosion followed by that, that jet yeah. fire, jet fire. 
Right. And unfortunately, a lot of the people, as I said, were working on that elevated platform. Some mm-hmm. of them jumped and got injured. Some of them had difficulty getting out of the way because they had fall protection on and they had to disconnect that to evacuate. At least one person had their fall protection on and forgot about it and jumped and then were stranded in harm's way, unfortunately. So it was a bad scenario. Once the pressure in the reactor went down because the relief valve was doing its job, then the relief valve closed back off and the flow of ethanol, or excuse me, ethylene dropped off and the fire went out. So the relief valve was only open for about three minutes, but you still ended up with 23 people injured. So obviously that was not to a safe location (laughs) for that incident. So what constitutes a safe location? I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of engineers may have seen notations on a PNID that just says to atmosphere or to a safe location. But how do you know what that is? Yeah, the ones that say to a safe location are the ones that are especially, you know, especially bad that, you know, we'll say liquid release as well. It's not going to make a puddle somebody could slip on or, right, it's, it's not going to, for a vapor, well, it's not going to shoot at anybody's face because we have it above the platform or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, re- really what you should be doing is you should be looking at, especially for something like this, where it's, it's I'd say, almost highly flammable. You should probably look at a dispersion model and and trying to model, okay, how big can the cloud get? You know, what what could we be looking at if we had a delayed ignition? If you have a jet fire, where where are people going to be exposed to high levels of radiation? Right? You don't you don't necessarily need to have the flames impinging on you to get burned from one of these exactly. from one of these fires. I mean, that that's why you control mm-hmm. access to the to the area around a flare stack. It's 200 feet in the air, but you still don't want to get too close. Right, right. And so even if they're handling something that's flammable, but maybe not quite as readily ignited as this uh, ethylene, it behooves you to do some modeling and figure out where your discharge cloud might be within the flammable limits so that you can avoid ignition sources in that region. You know, take a look at where that's going to disperse to. And it pertains not just to flammables, but to toxics as well, right? Right. Well, it's it's even more important for toxics, I would say, that, you know, depending on the material. But usually toxics, you're trying to avoid, you know, a, a parts per million concentration mm-hmm. people getting exposed to. So, I mean, that, that compared to maybe your lower flammable limit is half a percent. I mean, that that's right. orders of magnitude difference as far as... Mm-hmm. How do you make sure you don't expose the public to this or or keep it from your staff? So a lot of times people will route a relief valve discharge, say, up 10 feet or something like that. Is that always the best approach? If you're high up enough on a structure, that might be okay. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't say it's always the best the best Mm -hmm. uh, the best approach. I mean, this I think in the in the report, they actually show they revised their discharge of this from being a horizontally directed pipe to they actually extended their structure up mm-hmm. and routed this vertically so certainly if you're if you're routing you know say 10 feet up if there's equipment nearby that's that's taller i mean that's that's not exactly a, a perfect fence but that will create some congestion and anybody who's you know stood in a in an operating process area 
I mean, some of that equipment is a really effective windbreak and sound like I'm getting into meteorology a little bit, but you know, the more buildings and things you have around, the less wind there's going to be. And you, right. it's the less dispersion you're going to get. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the trick is when you have these releases, you want it to disperse quickly away from people so that you minimize your toxic exposure. And if it's flammable, it gets out of that flammable envelope or flammability range um, as quickly as possible. And the Mm -hmm. more dispersion and wind and so forth that you can expose it to, the faster that's going to happen. And this isn't a secret, right? I mean, we've we've had, you've seen tall smokestacks on power plants or whatever for, Mm -hmm. I mean, a long time, a a hundred, you know, maybe not hundreds of years, but, you know, over a hundred years we've figured out that there's more wind as you go higher up in the air. So <laughs> a really easy way to get better dispersion is just put it up higher. Right. And you'll, you'll disperse faster. So. Right. Now, now, what about the cases where you may have liquids or something that could condense into droplets or maybe even you've got a two-phase type discharge? What do you do there? You still want to throw that up in the air? You would have to look at that, you know, there are packages available. You can look at that. You can say, okay, where where would it rain out? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and am I okay living with that? If you direct it up, I mean, the other way to do it would be to, you're kind of trending towards diverting to a closed system. I mean, that, that's what you want to do, but <laughs> right. you can try to separate that liquid from that vapor on its way out so that, you know, you capture the liquid or if it's, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully if it's water or something like that, then make sure you send that you know, to grade or, or yep. somewhere you somewhere you can handle it and mm-hmm. and then vent your vapor upwards. So right, yeah. So someone had asked me uh, recently as we were talking about this incident. Well, why on earth did they point the discharge horizontal? Why not just point it straight up in the air? And my thinking was that they may have been trying to avoid rainwater accumulating in that discharge pipe. So that's one of the downsides if it's pointed straight up in the air, you get rain build up and then you could have unexpected back pressure on your relief device. Yep. So what do you suggest for folks when they have that concern? Well, so, I mean, there are ways to deal with that. I, I guess I've seen people try to put baffles and rain hats and that sort of thing on top of their discharge, on, mm-hmm. yeah, on top of their tailpipes, which, you know, generally it'll It'll work. They'll keep most of the water out. There might be, depending on how you have it oriented, that might kind of interfere with your dispersion a little bit. If you're mm-hmm. now right. jetting your vapor into a hat-shaped thing that kind of spreads it horizontally, it could get you right back where you started. But mm-hmm. um, the, I mean, the other the other thing that's done pretty commonly is you drill a little weep hole at the bottom of your the lowest point of your tailpipe and just allow rainwater to drain out that way. Right. I mean, that's, right. you know, that's not a perfect solution either. You got to make sure your weep hole is not too big that that becomes your vent path and <laughs> not too small that, you know, any corrosion products, you know, if, if it's a carbon steel pipe, if you get rust flakes that accumulate down there and, It'll block and it. plug up that hole, then you're right. right back where you started. So, right. One other thing that I've seen some people use is take like a waterproof fabric hat, if you will, that sits on top of there. But it's it's lightweight fabric that if you have a relief event, it just, you know, that hat flies off. Usually it's tethered so that you can put it back on. But it can be a waterproof fabric that'll keep rainwater from accumulating. 
But if you take that approach, you got to make sure that that is actually on and it hasn't blown right. off in the wind. So yeah, after after every event, you do need to run back out there and put it back, back. on. So. I, right. I think I've, I've seen that on some like anhydrous ammonia cylinders where they have those uh, they're little plastic caps. I think they sell the, okay. those and it's mm-hmm. it's not uncommon that, you know, you look at it, you say, oh, yeah, this must have relieved. <laughs> <laughs> the caps uh, hanging down by the side of the pipe. Yep. Right. Okay. right. All right. So we talked a lot about safe locations and so forth. One thing to talk about with this Carrare specifically is their PHA. It looked like from the report that their PHA team did identify some concerns with this relief device. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the recommendation was for these relief valves, not just this one, but several of them in the unit? Yeah, I think if I'm remembering the same thing, the same thing you're talking about, they had identified a bunch of valves like this that were handling ethylene or similar flammables and they were routed to atmosphere and they they probably needed to think about where those were discharging. I think they had some previous incidents where they had had releases, maybe one of them was from this same relief valve, that they'd had them historically and the cloud just hadn't lit off. Right. So. Some near misses. Right, right. Yeah, I think they also had an engineering firm that had looked at it, reviewing their pressure relief design, as we talked about in our last podcast, evaluating the adequacy and so forth. And that engineering firm had recommended routing these to a closed system, a flare system, as we talked about. Ideally, anything that you've got that's hazardous like this, especially flammables, it's preferred to go to a flare system, but those are expensive. So the engineering firm had recommended routing multiple relief valves to a blowdown drum and a flare system back in 2011, but they had not decided to pursue that project by the time this incident happened seven years later. So if they had implemented that recommendation, this wouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. And then I think, as you talked about, they had some near misses that the PHA team discussed as one of the items in your PHA revalidation is you should look at near misses and incidents. And when they did that, the team recommended reviewing these, but apparently those findings didn't get followed up, unfortunately. So that's I, I hate to say it, but that is that is really common that if you have a bunch of near misses like that, that it's kind of human nature. You're going to you're going to think I must be doing this better because nothing bad's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just because it doesn't happen, doesn't progress to some hazardous consequence doesn't mean you should ignore those near misses. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You need to you need to learn from those and take them seriously so that you avoid situations like these guys had where it, you know, one time it went off and it did ignite and catastrophic consequences and people injured. So they had a lot of people get hurt in this incident. I mean, it only lasted three minutes, but they had like 23 people injured. What do you think were the contributing causes to having so many people hurt with this? Other than kind of the, you know, all the all the process safety side of it, where, you know, they had a bunch of systems that probably should have intervened or done a better job mm-hmm. intervening before this got to the point it did. I mean, the fact is they had 23 people there while they were starting up. 
theoretically, it shouldn't matter how many people are there, but there's a lot of, you know, during the startup, like you said, it's one of the most dangerous times. There's a lot of things that are not normal. You know, you're not operating where you want to operate. You're trying to get there. Mm -hmm. And if something does go wrong like this, it's probably a good idea to, you know, work on that after startups done. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As definitely pointed out with that BP Texas City incident back in 2005, that you really should only have people that are essential for the startup in the area while you're doing your startup because it is so hazardous you know a lot of companies have now started evacuating all non-essential personnel before they progress to hazardous stages of their startup just so that there are fewer people in harm's way should something go wrong such as this so Mm -hmm. yeah if they had followed that good practice then there may have still been, you know, ignition, a fire, explosion, but hopefully there wouldn't have been as many people impacted. So were there other contributing causes to this or things that they might have been able to do to avert this tragedy? Well, so so one thing that's mentioned in, in there was, so, so right, this was an atmospheric relief valve. Mm-hmm. They did apparently have a pressure control valve available to them that vented to their flare system. They had a flare system. Okay. Um, the vent into their flare system. And I mean, it's been more common with that. And hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm getting on a soapbox to your listeners. But, but right, we, we have this, this flare system available to us. And its purpose mm-hmm. really is to get rid of gas that we can't handle and right. burn it safely over there up high. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. um, we're trying to cut back on how much that happens. We obviously we don't want a flare besides it being just plain wasteful. It's, you know, it's not something that people like to see. Right. Right. <laughs> and and they had know. some sort of environmental permit limits associated with the amount that they could flare and so forth. Right. Yeah. So, so, so there was some hesitancy to open that valve as much as they could because because they were aware that if we open this valve too much, we're going to exceed our permitted limits and Mm-hmm. And that's going to create a headache. And that a choice it. of opening the control valve to the flare to vent off the pressure that way, where it would be burned, or this atmospheric relief valve that was their last resort that took over when it needed to. But yeah, so they could have routed it all to the flare. We don't know for sure if that control valve had enough capacity to have handled the entire event, but it's possible that they could have avoided triggering this relief valve if they had utilized that vent. Right. They did not open it as much as they could have. So Exactly. Exactly. And as you were pointing out, you know, it's far better to run the risk of exceeding environmental permit than to, you know, risk blowing up a vessel. Or in this case, you know, opening your pressure relief valve that's your last line of defense against a catastrophic rupture. So Yeah, or or even with the relief valve, right? I mean, you injured twenty-three people here. If if you had flared excessively, that would that would be an environmental permit exceedance rather than twenty three people not going home at the end of the day. Yeah. Safety really should be winning that battle between safety and environmental every time. But unfortunately that's not how how it goes every time. So exactly. Yeah. So another few things that popped out at me as I was reading the report is that they had some safety interlocks that were bypassed during the startup. It's often 
necessary because you're transitioning process modes and so forth as you're going through the startup. That's part of why startups are hazardous. But once they got past that step in the process, they didn't reactivate those safety interlocks. As I recall, one of them was with this pressure control valve. Does that match with what you're thinking or the temperature controls? That's right. There, there was certainly a temperature control that was supposed to intervene. Okay. There may have been a pressure as well that would have opened that. That I mean, right. yeah, like, like you're saying, we they didn't want that system to intervene during startups. So they turned it off, but they they did right. not identify, or it doesn't seem that they identified when that system. You know, when is the earliest you can put that safeguard back in place? It was just right. more of a let's get it where it needs to be, and then we'll turn it on. Yeah, yeah, and so anytime you've got something like that bypassed, as soon as you're past that step that necessitates the bypass, it should go back in service right away. And then there were some other design nuances that contributed to this and that they had four matching systems. And for some reason, this Eval 2 had a significantly lower pressure rating, MAWP, maximum allowable working pressure for that reactor. That was several hundred PSI less than the other ones. And so there was some confusion, it sounded like, on the operator's part as to how high that pressure could get before it triggered the relief valve. And with this one with a lower pressure rating, the relief valve set pressure was much lower and they didn't have as much room to operate as they did on the other trains, which was unfortunate. Yeah, I think it sounded like, I forget if they said that the operators realized that that difference before the relief valve went off, or it, it sounded like there was at least one operator that, I mean, he thought he had an extra 200 pounds of, of headroom. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that could have been that shift change that maybe the first shift operators knew that they were getting close, but then when they changed shifts, the other person thought it was like the other ones and they had a lot more time to deal with it, which they didn't. So, are there any uh, RAGAGAP recognized and generally accepted good engineering practices that people should be paying attention to when they're looking at these relief devices so that they do go to a safe location? Well, so as far as a safe location, API 521, that standard does talk about, you know, how to build a disposal system and it does get into atmospheric discharges and what sort of facilities should you have set up to okay. handle those. Okay, so be- so the API standards is probably the best best guidance to go to for that. Are there other tools that people might want to use when they're evaluating these? Yeah, I mean there there are you know dispersion modeling software that there's packages available. I want to say there are some. Maybe maybe you could refresh me, or if you remember the name of the, there are some free packages out there. I can't remember the names of them offhand, but okay. So so yeah, do do some dispersion modeling. Look carefully at what your relief scenarios are and what you're going to be relieving, so that you understand are that you're dealing with flammables or toxics or what phase or your liquid vapor so forth. So if you're looking at thermal radiation. I I'm not sure that there's a free model available for that one. Maybe there is, but. Okay. I, I haven't encountered that. Okay. And so just some general learnings people should take away from this. What do you say on the relief side of things? Well, certainly for this, if you have a relief device that discharges the atmosphere, you, you probably want to look at that as soon as you can, really, mm-hmm. that will a release from that cause problems? And you know, is there an area I need to get people out of that they're not aware of they're in right now? Mm-hmm. 
if you have a setup like this where you already have a pressure control valve that goes to the flare, so you know you'd like to burn whatever's in there if you're going to release it, but then you have an atmospheric relief valve. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You may want to think about just trying to get that atmospheric relief valve tied into your flare system instead. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, right, it, it's... If you've got the possibility, you got the flare equipment already there, go ahead and take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it's kind of a... Little bit of a little bit of a tangent to that, but I mean, right, relief valves aren't perfect devices either. They can leak by. There are failure modes that they do have. I mean, they're pretty robust as far as doing what they're supposed to do, but you'd probably rather have it leak to the flare rather than just out to the atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah. And then for PHAs, I'd like to remind people that if you've got some recommendations or if you've got a engineering designed that says you've got a hazard that you should deal with, management should take those seriously and address them, not leave them sitting around for years on end gathering dust when you could have somebody in harm's way. So, okay. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. If you've got a comment, listeners, about this week's episode or an idea for a future episode or any process safety related questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us a voice message using the link in our episode description or just shoot us an email at podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. If you're one of Chris's fans and want to hear the earlier episode that uh, he participated in, you can listen to episode 63 that discusses relief device documentation. This podcast is about one of the CSB, Chemical Safety Board, incident investigation reports. We've been reviewing several of these, so we encourage you to go to the CSB website at csb.gov to learn additional information about it. There's a short video that's very helpful in understanding this Carrare incident in addition to the more extensive report. And finally, our goal at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems. And it is our firm belief that these systems will help prevent catastrophic incidents like what happened here at Carrare. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help you on your process safety journey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be safe out there. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, amplifyconsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.